he is risen. He is risen indeed. I love the greeting that's been passed down through the centuries. 2,000 years ago, people said, he is risen, he is risen indeed, except they said it in Greek or Latin, not in English. But as the faith spread, that greeting has been said in Chinese. It's been said in Russian. It's been said in German and in Swedish. It's been said in Spanish and all the languages in the world that he is risen. There you go. That greeting shows the longevity of our faith. We're not just following a belief system that was invented a few decades ago by some religious nuts. It's not what it is. We have a faith that has stayed the same for 2,000 years. I got my degree in church history, and I've studied all the writings from now all the way back through the centuries until the writings right after the apostles, and the faith has stayed the same for all these 2,000 years ago. There have been people who have been trying to pull it this way and pull it that way, but the thread has run consistently through it because our God is in control, and he has proven his faithfulness through the years, and you can see it over and over and over again. Those who heard his teachings 2,000 years ago who saw him, who walked with him, have passed down his life and his gospel to us, all based upon the fact that he is risen. He there you go, you're waking up. <laughs> See if I can catch you. Matthew is one of those who have recorded for us what he saw. But before we dive into the scripture, will you pray again with me? Father, merciful Redeemer, my Savior and my God, it is a joy to come and study your word and to know that it's true beyond a shadow of a doubt because we have the proof of it remaining the same all this time. And that never happens. Lord, thank you that, you that we have a faith that is not a blind jump off a hill, but it is a confidence of what we know and are assured of. Lord, thank you that we can believe and that we can have a relationship with you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, today as we reflect on our amazing faith and your gracious gift, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Matthew wrote about this day 2,000 years ago in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. Matthew says, After the Sabbath... At dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. 
Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Can you imagine what they are going through that morning? Not only did their best friend die, but they watched him die. The most painful death imaginable. This was the man who gave them hope for a better life. He taught them the ways of God and said, if you follow me, you will experience the kingdom of God. He he was prophesied to be the one who would save them from their enemies. And then they watched him die, the most painful, horrible death imaginable. And they were experiencing grief upon grief. A few few women who followed him him were coming to the tomb that morning 2,000 years ago to perform one last loving act. They were going to finish the embalming process for this, their best friend, and add more spices to that which was quickly wrapped around him a couple days before. There was tears running down their cheeks when they walked up the path to the garden tomb. And then they saw this. And the angel told them that Jesus was not dead. When he glared on the cross in John 19, it is finished. He was not declaring that the process of death was complete. He was declaring that the reason he died, the purpose he was fulfilling, that was complete. And he proved it by rising from the dead. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verses 8 to 10, he says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has any mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The truth is that he is risen. (laughs) He's not dead. Therefore, since he is not dead, sin has been paid for. We know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. We know that we don't have to pay for it because he did. This morning when we were shivering out in the cold, wintry, or springy, depending on your definition, air, we talked about how the woman learned three things that morning. Now, I'm not going to resuscitate everything, regurgitate everything I said this morning, but we will review it and I will share some other things so you don't have to think you're giving the same sermon twice. It is completely different. Okay. But... The first thing that the ladies learned was Jesus wasn't dead. He's alive, just as we discussed. The second thing we learned is Jesus wasn't ordinary. He's God. Jesus spoke to the religious leaders in John chapter 8, verses 58 to 59. He's told the religious leaders, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, the religious leaders picked up stones to stone him, to kill him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. At that time, Jesus declared himself God. The words, I am, make up the name of God. Moses, back in the day before he rescued Israel out of Egypt, he was standing up on a desert mountain tending some sheep, and he sees a burning bush, and he goes and talks to it and finds out that burning bush, God is there. God tells him, take off your sandals because it's holy ground. God tells him to go to Egypt. Moses says, ain't no way, not going to happen. He says, but if I'm going to go, tell me your name. Tell me your name, God. And so God declares his name. He says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. 
That's why the religious leaders wanted to stone Jesus. Because in their mind, when he said those words, he was speaking blasphemy. He had declared himself God. But he was saying something that's true. God came to earth as a man, born of a virgin, living a perfect life and dying my death, your death, to pay for the sins of the world, that we might have a close friendship, a personal relationship with him, our creator. We were created to have this relationship. Adam and Eve had this relationship, uninterrupted, unfiltered, nothing in between, them knowing God completely and God knowing them. But sin came into the world. Not just Adam and Eve sinned, but every single one of us have sinned. We were born sinners, and we replicate that every single day. Our sin separates us from God, and there's nothing we can do to bridge that gap between us and God. No amount of good works will do it. No amount of religion or religious rituals, nothing can make us good enough to have a relationship with a holy God who can have no sin around him. So because of our state as the Kids said this morning that God loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, that whoever believes in him will not perish, will have everlasting life. God came to earth and paid the penalty for our sin, and he proved who he was, God in the flesh, by raising himself from the dead. Jesus told his disciples in John 10, the reason my father loves me is that I laid down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. He is risen. risen Proving who he is. The third thing the ladies learned that morning is that Jesus is waiting. Jesus is waiting. The angels told the ladies, go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see. Now I've told you. After that time, Jesus appeared to over 500 disciples for the next 40 days. He ate with them. He drank with them. He talked with them. They touched him. They all knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was no ghost. He was alive. And then he ascended to heaven, promising to come back. And the Bible tells us that he is waiting there for us. The Bible speaks of him as the first fruits. He is the first to be raised, and we will be next when we join them in eternity. We're coming into planting season. After planting, there'll be summer. Hopefully, crops won't get scorched out or drowned out, and harvest will come. And that first part of harvest is the first fruits. It's the promise of the rest of the harvest. Jesus is that first fruit, promise of the rest of the harvest. He rose, we will raise too when we join him in eternity. John 3.16, third time we have said it this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I memorized this in the King James. That's the NAV. He's there waiting to greet us. Those who have believed in him, welcoming them into eternity. Some of us will join him through death. Others of us will join him when he gloriously returns and calls us to himself through the rapture. Either way, he is waiting. God, after paying everything, going through all that pain, all that misery, that we might have a personal relationship with him, is waiting for our arrival to welcome us home. 
Jesus is risen. But what are we going to do about it? There were two groups who witnessed his resurrection 2,000 years ago. That these two groups had completely different responses. We who live today can join one group or the other. There's no in-between. When we speak about our faith in Jesus Christ, there's no sitting on the fence, having one leg hanging out and this side and the other leg hanging out on the other side. You just get pain. It doesn't work. You're either on one side or the other. And if you're not on one side, you're definitely on the other. The first group that saw Jesus' resurrection lied about it. Matthew tells us about this group, Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 to 15. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you're to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this day. These guards were there at the tomb. They saw the angel come from heaven. They saw the angel roll the stone away. They knew what had happened. But what did they do? They disregarded the truth and spread lies. We have the truth. Every time the Bible is read and the gospel is shared, truth has been heard. But everyone has a choice of what they will do with that truth. From birth, people have seen the truth about God. They've been faced with the truth that there is a God. The heavens declare the glory of God in Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Everywhere we look, we have evidence of a designer, someone who knit this world together and who holds this world together. As we interact with humanity, we have evidence of a designer because a moral standard has been placed inside of everyone, a common grace by which we know what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what dignity and respect are. We have those truths in us because someone has placed that in us. The proof is all around us. And then we have the word of God, the love letter that God wrote to us verified by historical record, speaking truth about everything that God has done to reach out to us and provide a way for us to reach out to him. Some people interact with this truth and they don't believe. These people are like Thomas after Jesus rose from the dead. He was told by the disciples they had seen Jesus, they had talked with Jesus, they had eaten with Jesus, and the disciples ran and told Thomas, 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 guess what? We saw the Lord! And Thomas said, no, I don't believe it. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, my hand in his side, I will not believe. These people need evidence. They need evidence. And until the evidence comes, they refuse to believe. Josh McDowell was a lawyer, uh, training to be a lawyer in law school, and he heard about Christianity, and he said this only bunch of nuts would believe in Christianity. And I'm going to prove it 
that that's true. And I'm going to prove, I'm going to, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'm going to prove that no one should be a Christian. So he set about and he began to collect evidence that Christianity cannot be true. And he ended up writing a book called Evidence Demands a Verdict, proving the preponderance, the overwhelming evidence that Christianity has to be true. He saw the evidence and he was convinced. Even though he wanted to prove Christianity, the evidence flipped him over. 20 years later, Lee Strobel was a journalist. He was fed up off all his Christ, this Christian talk. In fact, his wife went to church and became a believer, and he, was, he thought that was the worst thing in the whole world. The thing that got him his goat the most was the resurrection. He said, there's no, n- no one can raise themselves from the dead. It can't be true. And since all of Christianity ties to this pin, this point of the resurrection, I'm going to disprove the resurrection, and all of Christianity will fall apart. He spent years researching it. Finally, he wrote the book, The Case of Christ, which was made into a feature-length film a couple years ago because of the amount of evidence that proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead. Some people don't believe, and they need the facts. Some people don't understand. They're presented with the fact that Jesus loved them enough to leave the glories of heaven and come to earth so that they might, so that he would die in their place. And that they're presented with the fact that he offers it to them as a free gift. If they would just admit that they're sinners and desperately need him and they could do nothing to save themselves. That's all they have to do. And to this message, they say, no, that can't be true. I'm too bad. I've done too many bad things. Jesus can't love me. Other people say, no, that can't be true because that's too easy. I need to do something. People hear the truth and they can't understand. Their mind, their emotions, their guilt is getting in the way of the cross. Those who feel unlovable or unforgivable forget the simple phrase, Jesus paid it all. He proved his love to us by dying on the cross for our sins. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the sinners. He died for the ungodly. He died for his enemies. So if you feel that this describes you, that you are a sinner, that you are ungodly, you are the one that Jesus died for. The gift is for you, so you don't have to feel unforgivable. You don't have to feel unlovable, because Jesus said, I have paid it all, every single part of it. Those who feel that salvation is too easy forget the cost that Jesus paid. Jesus did everything because we could do nothing, and he went through that horrible, painful death. No, salvation is not easy. But Jesus did everything because we are powerless to do anything. Nothing we can do can put us even an inch toward eternity. So Jesus said, yeah, the cost is great. There's a lot to be done, but I am doing it all. You don't have to do anything because you can do nothing. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. He said, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Some people don't believe. Some people don't understand. 
some people don't want to believe. Because if they did, their lives would change. If we acknowledge that there is a holy God who created the world and who did everything to bridge the gap between his creation and himself, that we might have a personal relationship with him, we would have to change. That fact requires change. And some people don't want to change. They come face to face with the truth and they refuse to accept it because they realize that if if Jesus did everything to die for my sins, that means I'm going to have to respond in love towards him and my life will just naturally change and I don't want that to happen. When I was 18, just graduated from high school, I had the immense privilege to spend a month in Brazil on a missions trip. I was part of a drama troupe, a music troupe, and we went and did evangelistic programs in youth camps and public schools down there. We also did some open air evangelism where we would set up our stuff and we'd do a passion play in the middle of the streets of this big city down in Brazil, and then we'd go out and talk to the crowd and share the gospel with them. A lot of fun. One day in some random city in Brazil, I have no idea where it was. If I did, I wouldn't be able to pronounce it. We were there, did our program. I went out and was talking with some people. They all spoke Portuguese, so I was talking through an interpreter. And I was explaining the gospel to this person, this man who was there, and I was talking about sin. And, you know, I was young. I was homeschooled. I, you know. So I was talking about, you know, trying to define sin for him and saying, you know, lying is sin, doing all these sorts of things, bad things, little things like lying is sin. And he looked at me and he said, oh, you mean like doing drugs and dealing drugs? I said, yeah, yeah, there's that, and there's this other stuff too. And he said, but, but you're talking about drugs and dealing drugs. I'm like, well, yeah, that turns out he was a drug dealer. <laughs> and I talked with him some more, explained the gospel to him. He heard, patiently heard me out, and then he thanked me, turned around and walked away. I still remember him today. His face comes back to me because I wonder where he's at right now. Because on that day, he heard the truth of the gospel and he refused to believe because he didn't want his life to change. Some people don't want to believe. I don't know where the guards landed on why they disregarded the truth. I just know that they did disregard the truth, even though they saw it with their own eyes. Then they turned around and spread lies about Jesus. Even though they did that, and even though for 2,000 years since then, people have responded the same way the guards did, their refusal to believe the truth does not deny the truth. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, enter through the narrow gate, For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through that one. Small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. How do we respond to the truth? Do we join the guards and lie about it? Or do we join the disciples and tell about it? Matthew records for us in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. The disciples believed the truth and the truth changed them so much that they're willing to act on it. There are three ways that the disciples and us get to tell about Jesus as seen in this passage. The first, we tell it through belief. We tell it through belief. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, verses nine to 10, he says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is your, with, your mouth, it was with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. For someone to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we must believe. There has to be a point in our life where we drew in the line of the sand and we say, yes, I am a believer. Belief requires a telling. It requires a declaring to God that I realize that I'm a sinner and that my sin separates me from God and there is nothing that I can do about it. Nothing. I am powerless. And therefore, I believe that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross for my sin and I trust him and his death on the cross alone for my sin. Now, when I say trust, there's a lot of confusion sometimes about this word trust. There are some people that say, oh yes, I've trusted in God because I've trusted him to protect me in different times in my life or I've trusted him to guide me or I've trusted him to encourage me and all that's great, but you can trust God to protect you or guide you or encourage you. You can trust God and go straight to hell when you die. I'm talking about trusting him, making a decision to trust him to save you from your sins for eternity, to make that choice of saying, I've placing all my chips on his square. John wrote in John 1, 12 to 13, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. This act of receiving that John talks about, this act of receiving is the act of declaring. This, this declaring with your mouth, this, this belief, yes, yes, I am a believer in Jesus Christ for my sins. Only him and his death on the cross. There are some people who don't have this dramatic moment of faith that they can point to. Theirs is a gradual understanding, a discovery one day. When they look back, they're like, oh no, I do believe, and I have believed for a period of time. Some people have this dramatic moment of conversion. Other people have this gradual coming to it. But the, point thing, the important thing is that there is that realization. There is that statement of faith that happens. I believe in Jesus to save me from my sins, and my trust is in him alone, nothing that I do. And the question is, have you done that? Have you done that? It's a life and death decision for eternity. Has there been a point you've come to that realization or are you still trusting in works you have done, churches you have attended, religious rituals you've gone through, prayers you have prayed, or have you come to Jesus and said, I'm a sinner and I need you alone because I can do nothing? If we believe, we tell it through belief. We also tell it through baptism. We tell it through baptism. Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now I have to be careful because baptism doesn't do anything to save anyone. There are some churches 
that teach that, but unfortunately, the Bible proves otherwise. And scripture after scripture tells us that baptism does nothing except get you wet. That's it, it is faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves. The thief on the cross merely believed who Jesus was, and Jesus told him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Baptism doesn't save us, it doesn't. Baptism is a proclamation. It's a telling of what has happened on the inside. Everyone who comes up here to be baptized confesses that they personally have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and they want the world to know it. They're not trusting in anything else other than Jesus Christ. And they confess they want to follow Jesus with their lives and this step of baptism is their first step in obedience, following him in there. Here as a church, we do what's called full immersion baptism here for this, with the, because of the symbolism. We are identifying with Christ's burial, death and burial and resurrection saying that Jesus went through that for me, I believe in that to save me, and I'm identifying it, and I'm gonna live that for other people too. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, if you have joined that personal relationship that our creator wants to have with us that lasts for all of eternity, have you been baptized in obedience to Jesus Christ that the world knows the decision you have made? We tell it through belief. We tell it through baptism. Finally, we tell it through proclamation. This passage, Matthew 28, is called the Great Commission, where Jesus tells his disciples the, their purpose in life. From this moment on, their purpose is to spread the good news about Jesus Christ around the world. The good news is rather astonishing if we sit down and think about it. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, he said, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We were God's enemies, actively living in a way that is against him, stuck in a position, powerless to do anything different. But Jesus said, I love him. Jesus said, I love her, and therefore I am going to die for my enemy. I wouldn't do that. Most of you wouldn't do that either, but Jesus did. So he died the most miserable death imaginable to snatch us from eternity of death and destruction and earn our friendship. If we really believe that truth, if we have seen how that truth has changed our lives, we should want to tell it. We should say, you know what? Jesus commanded me to tell about him. He died for me. Therefore, I'm going to do this for him. The next person I see, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. Or we should say, you know what? I'm surrounded by people who are lost and needing the saving truth about Jesus Christ. Therefore, for their sake, I'm going to tell them so that they don't have to spend eternity apart from God, but instead they can be loved by a person who can love beyond a shadow of a doubt in a depth that we could never even realize if we have not tasted his love. So for their sake, I'm going to do it for them. Whether it's for him or them, we should want to tell. But unfortunately, it's not natural for us. It's not natural for me. We would rather talk about March Madness football. We'd rather talk about the odds of whether the Huskers are actually going to have a winning season next year. We'd rather talk about our most current ailment that is affecting us and why we're going to the hospital or the doctor, why we don't want to go to the hospital or the doctor, and we should. We'd rather talk about all that sort of stuff. But Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection have an eternal impact for me and the world. So why would we want to talk about anything else since Jesus did so much for us? Will you pray with me?
Father, thank you for your amazing love. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross that we might be redeemed. Knowing that we could do nothing, but you did it all. And you just say, come. In humility and acceptance. And when we do, you embrace us. And you say, welcome home, my child. And you promise us an assurance of eternity with you in a place of perfection. Lord, thank you for the hope and the joy that gives us through all the chaos of this life. I I am in awe of what you have done that, that you might call us yours. Thank you. Father, I ask the awe that we have would not die or diminish. But every morning we wake up, we can breathe it anew as we reflect on your faithfulness that when we sit up, we can say, I am redeemed beyond a shadow of a doubt. And I have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And if I should die today, I know where I'm going. And Lord, may that confidence shine out from us and touch those around us with your truth. Lord, we are your people, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. May we live like it. Thanks, Father. Take our hymnals and turn to number 